0: I want to invite you to open your Bible to Revelation chapter 14 as we continue our series going through the Revelation. I want to begin by sharing a story about one of a number of surgeries that I've had over the course of my life. Um, I didn't do the math, but there's been quite a few. But when I was around 21 or 22, I I had a deviated septum corrected. That means is my nose had taken a few too many baseballs over the course of my growing up years. uh, In my defense, I kept the ball in front of me. Uh, But it was was been broken numerous times, and so the bone between my two nostrils looked more like that road in San Francisco, and I had a hard time breathing well. And so the plan was to uh, surgically break that and straighten it out. And so I remember on the day of surgery, uh, being on the bed or the gurney or whatever it was, being rolled towards the operating room by some young orderly. And as we approached the room, another patient was rolled out right next to me. And uh, the, the orderly pushing me chuckled. And he said, that's what you're going to look like in a few minutes. <laughs> not, not real encouraging. Uh, Not real kind. I don't think it was intended to. He was just having a little bit of fun at my expense. Over the last number of weeks, as we've been walking through these chapters of the Revelation, Jesus has been revealing to his followers what they are about to face. It's as though in giving them these visions of the dragon, of the two beasts, that Jesus is uh, wheeling his followers past these images of what they are about to look like. But unlike the orderly wheeling me to the OR, Jesus does not say, in effect, sucks to be you. You're about to get messed up like that. That's not the point. He does more. Yes, they will suffer. Yes, they are about to be messed up. But he does more. He gives his followers these visions in order to encourage them ultimately. That beyond their suffering, beyond the fight, the war that the dragon will wage against them, beyond all that the beasts are going to throw at them, beyond even martyrdom that that some of them, perhaps many of them will face, there is reason for hope. Jesus in his love and in his compassion, pulls back the curtains to show them more. To, to give them a glimpse of the future. To see that they will one day stand in triumph with the Lamb. To see that one day the dragon and the beast will be shown to be completely defeated. To see that despite the very real suffering that they're going through, about to go through and endure, there is a choice before them to worship the Lamb or to worship the beast. And that that choice is a no-brainer. Jesus pulls back the, cur- the curtain in order to give them courage for the crisis they are walking into. We've been making our way through uh, these central chapters of the book of Revelation the last few weeks. The Revelation literally means the apocalypse, the unveiling. Here, Jesus pulls back the curtain. He lifts off the cover so that we can see what is really real. Things are not as they appear. There is more going on than meets our physical eyes. Three weeks ago, we came to Revelation 12, a chapter that I contended is the theological center of the book. In chapter 12, Jesus provides us with a vision that helps us see what is happening in the world and a vision that helps us see and understand why those who have put their faith in Jesus still suffer as they do. Revelation 12, John looks and he sees a sign, a woman dressed in the sun, standing on the moon with a crown of 12 stars, And her head, she's pregnant and about to give birth. John looks and he sees another sign. An enormous red dragon poised right in front of the woman, ready to devour the child the moment he is born. John looks and sees the son born. Jesus, the Messiah, we know. And that son is snatched up to the throne of God, we read. In that phrase, it captures Jesus' birth and His life, His ministry, His death, resurrection, ascension, all captured in that Jesus is caught up to the throne of God. And the dragon realizes His defeat, and He's filled with fury. And He aims to wage war against the descendants of the woman, against the people of God. He does not do so directly. He does so through two agents, through two beasts. Two weeks ago, we met the first, the beast that comes out of the sea. And and, uh, the first beast we discovered through our study represented political power, unhooked, divorced from God. In John's day, clearly Rome, the Roman Empire. But that beast continues to manifest itself through the centuries. And every empire that rejects the living God, every empire that sets itself up and usurps the place of God, that demands the ultimate allegiance of its citizens, we see this beast. Last week, we met the second beast, the beast out of the earth. This beast is more ideological, going after people's minds and hearts, seeking to get people to worship the beast, to worship falsely. False religion, false worship. In John's day, clearly the cult of the emperor, enforced by local authorities, local officials, in order to demonstrate their allegiance to the emperor, in order to bring about unity, Civic unity. And they're told, they, they, they lead people, they encourage people, they threaten people to give their devotion, their allegiance, their worship to this beast, to the emperor, to the empire. Now, if we take a step back from what we've covered over these last three weeks, we will recognize fairly clearly that none of this has been good news. Uh, there's a dragon who has seen his defeat and he. He is filled with fury and ready to wage war against God's people. He does so through two beasts. The first beast from the sea who we read will conquer God's people, and the second beast who will kill God's people and make life difficult economically. Probably not in that order, though that's the order it comes to us in the text. What we need to remember as we come to chapter 14 today is that chapter breaks are not original. They weren't there originally originally. Uh, this story, the Revelation, is, is a, uh, a literary document that the original hearers, the original readers would have heard from start to finish. Uh, they would not have gathered and heard about the dragon and heard about beast number one out of the sea and beast number two out of the earth and then said, uh, okay, see you next Sunday, though that's what we do. That's what we've done. No, this is one large narrative, and chapter 14 continues very importantly, on the heels of all that's come before. Jesus pulls back the curtain so that his people can see that there is more going on than meets the eye. He, he pulls up the curtain back to warn them, to prepare them, to encourage them. Now, here's what we're going to do today uh, through chapter 14. Rather than reading it all at once, we're going to read through it in three sections. Pausing after each section, I want to unpack the details and help you understand uh, what is going on, what John is speaking of, what the imagery symbolism is saying. And then once we've made our way through the text, we will briefly reflect on the implications for us as hearers of this text today. So first part we'll look at is... uh, Chapter 14, verses 1 to 5. You can follow along with me if you have your Bibles. Then I looked, and there before me was the Lamb, standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a sound from heaven like the roar of rushing waters and like a loud peal of thunder. The sound I heard was like that of harpists playing their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. These are those who did not defile themselves with women, for they remained virgins." They follow the Lamb wherever He goes. They were purchased from among mankind and offered as first fruits to God and the Lamb. No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. There's lots to unpack in just those first few verses. Uh, let me begin by reminding you uh, that as we begin our exploration of what these first few verses, we've just encountered two beasts, two beasts that are against the people of God, the beast from the sea, the beast from the earth. The people of God will be conquered and killed if they do not worship the beast. They face this real threat, this real crisis. And these two beasts, one from the sea and one from the land, seem, uh, seem to have uh, absolutely formidable power. And before them, God's people stand, and it seems helpless. You're going to be killed. You're going to be oppressed. And we are meant to remember something. I want to remind you something that we saw a little while earlier in the text, back in chapter 10. Remember in the trumpets, God's trumpets, these trumpet blasts of judgment. In the opening of chapter 10, we read this. We encountered a mighty angel coming down from heaven. And what did he do? He, We read in verse 2, he planted his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the sea on the land. That was a clue that despite appearances, despite the fact that here, when we get to chapter 13, it seems like the beast from the sea and the beast from the land, that they exercise absolute power. But that angel that came from the presence of God, that represents God, stands on the sea and on the land, that, that we are reminded right from the outset as we make our way through the book, that God is the one ultimately with power over the land and the sea, despite appearances to the contrary. Now here in the opening verses of chapter 14, we see the results of the fact that despite all that we've seen to this point, despite the fury of the dragon, despite the war waged upon the people of God by the two beasts, the beast from the sea and the beast from the earth, it is the people of God who stand in victory. This is the vision of the redeemed. Let's take a closer look. First, we see the lamb, that is Jesus, the one, the lamb who was slain, uh, the son of the woman from chapter 12, who the dragon sought to devour, the son snatched up to God in his throne. We see him uh, standing on Mount Zion. Satan sought to destroy him but failed. Second, we note that the lamb is standing on Mount Zion. Mount Zion is another way of speaking of Jerusalem. Now, is John saying that Jesus is literally standing on Jerusalem? Is this about geography? I would contend, no, it's not. Revelation is full of imagery and symbols. In 96 AD, when John received this revelation, when he wrote this down for the churches in Asia, uh, the city of Jerusalem lay in, in utter ruin. But more than that, We see here that there's 144,000 singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. What does that remind us of? Back in Revelation 4 and 5, John's vision of the heavenly throne room. The one who sits upon the throne and four living creatures and 24 elders. John sees this vision of the Lamb and 144,000 on Mount Zion before the throne. This is imagery coming together. This isn't about geography. This is a vision about worshiping God. And what we see as we make our way through the biblical text is that Mount Zion and Jerusalem come to represent not an earthly place, but a heavenly destination. Uh, the heavenly destination of God's people. We will yet read of the new Jerusalem descending out of heaven, yet in Revelation as we continue to make our way forward. This is not about earthly Jerusalem, Earthly Jerusalem is not our home, but a heavenly Jerusalem. In Hebrews 12, we read this. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You've come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. John looks and he sees the lamb on Mount Zion. That's not speaking literally about Jerusalem. It's speaking of the dwelling place of God, the place where God will dwell with his redeemed people. Third, we read that with the lamb stand this 144,000. Who are they? Well, a few things. First, we encountered this same number earlier on in the Revelation, back in uh, Revelation chapter 7. In the midst of the breaking of the seals, we came to this interlude vision. You might recall there were two visions interlude between the breaking of the first six seals and the breaking of the seventh seal. And the first interlude vision, we see this group of 144,000. Remember, if you do, Uh, There are four angels at the four corners of the earth holding back the four winds. That is, four winds that bring destruction upon the earth and the inhabitants of the earth are about to be loosed. And another angel comes and says, hold on, do not loose the winds yet until we've marked those who belong to God. And he comes with a seal from the living God to put a seal on those who belong to God. And in that vision, we meet 144,000. Now, I answer the question, or that interlude vision, rather, answers a question asked with the breaking of the sixth seal. Remember, the sixth seal, when that is broken, there's this massive earthquake, and the inhabitants of the earth, those who have rebelled and refused to repent, a cry out to God, or a cry out, who can stand when God's judgment comes? Who can stand? And the interlude vision answers that, and that's where we encounter this 144,000. Now, 144,000, I would contend, is a symbol, not a statistic. 12 times 12 is 144. 12 tribes in Israel. When Jesus came, he he uh, reconstituted Israel around himself. He, he appointed 12 to be apostles. 12 times 12 is 144. Uh, to, to 10 to the power of 3. I, I, this is, this is a, a big number. This is the people of God, Old Covenant, New Covenant. This is the whole people of God. This is what is symbolized with 144,000. Not a statistic, but a symbol. This enormous number coincides with what we see in the second interlude vision of chapter 7, a multitude that cannot be counted. So earlier in the Revelation, 144,000 represents the whole people of God. Now, there are moments in the Revelation where some of the imagery is a bit fluid. And I would contend that this is one of those moments where we experience, where we see a little bit of that. Certainly 144,000 represents the people of God, but here we read in verse four that they are offered as first fruits to God. So what does that mean in this context? There's a nuance we should recognize. First fruits is the first part of a harvest. If you were a farmer, uh, the first Uh, apples you pick off your tree, the first grain that you uh, harvest from your field, those are the first fruits. That is, there's more to come. And so here, the 144,000, clearly a reference to the people of God, are referred to in this context as first fruits. So I would suggest here, the 144,000, though certainly pointing to the people of God, isn't the whole people of God, but specifically in the context is those people of God, members of the people of God, who have lost their lives in martyrdom. Think of the context. Revelation 12, this dragon ready to wage war against the people of God. Uh, chapter 13, the beast from the sea, the beast from the earth who will kill God's people. Jesus opening the curtain to encourage his people. And here he shows a vision of the people of God in victory, in triumph, standing on Mount Zion with the Lamb. Those who are the first fruits, that is, those who have lost their lives in what is about to come. I would suggest that is what is going on here. Rome is about to come down hard on the church. There is this great holocaust that is about to happen. And Jesus wants to encourage the believers in faithfulness. Here they see that they stand victorious with Jesus on Mount Zion, despite the worst that Rome will do. Second, here in this text we read these words in reference to this group. They are the 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. Remember, immediately before this, we, we read this part where the second beast uh, forced people to worship the first beast and have the beast the, the mark of the beast put on their right hand or on their forehead. Here, in contrast, are those who have the name of the Lamb and of the Father on their forehand. The different group, different mark. These are those who belong to Jesus. Clearly, they stand in contrast to those who have been marked with the mark of the beast. Third, we have another confirmation that these are the redeemed of God. Who have been saved through Christ. They are singing. And John describes at this point not only what he sees, but what he hears. And here there's just this beautiful mixing of metaphors. He hears the sound of rushing waters. Imagine the the roar of Niagara Falls. Uh, He hears the sound of a loud peal of thunder, this, this this loud thunder that shakes you to your core. He hears the sound of harpists playing harps. Now, I don't know what you think of when you you hear the word harp. But, but in the ancient world, a harp was a happy instrument. Think kind of a banjo. Here he brings this together. The, the roar of a waterfall, the thunder, uh, uh, the loud, loudness of thunder, and the happiness of harps. This, this noise he hears. And what is it? It is the redeemed, 144,000 singing the song of the redeemed. This song that, that is overwhelmingly powerful and overwhelmingly joyful. Now, before we move on to the next part of our text, I do need to address what might have struck you as offensive, certainly a little shocking. Verse 4, where we read, these were those, speaking of the 144,000, these were those who did not defile themselves with women, for they remained virgins. What in the world is that about? Uh, I want to say right off the hop, this is imagery, pure and simple. This is not saying somehow that women cause spiritual pollution. Absolutely not. Nor is it saying that sexuality is a bad thing that spiritually pollutes us. Nor is it glorifying celibacy. Marriage is God's good gift to humanity and and sexual expression within the context of God's gift of marriage is a good and glorifying thing. So what is the point? Throughout the Old Testament, if you read the prophets, you'll see this over and over and over again. Israel is often referred to as the virgin daughter of God. And when Israel sins, she is said to play the role of an adulterer. There are countless references that we could look to. And then in the New Testament, that imagery is transferred to the church The church is the bride of Christ, and that's why Paul says to the Corinthians, I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to Him. The point being made is simply this, that the 144,000, the redeemed of God, who have lost their lives in this war waged against them by the dragon and the two beasts, that they have been faithful. Not sinlessly perfect, but faithful. In Revelation 17, we will meet the great harlot, Babylon, the prostitute. The beasts have sought to lead them into worship of the beast, but the 144,000, the people of God, have remained faithful to God. They have not committed adultery with Rome, they have not worshiped the beast. That's the point. Let's move on to the next section of our text, verses 6 to 13. Then I saw another angel flying in midair, and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. He said in a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. A second angel followed and said, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. Third, A third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives its mark on their forehead or on their hand, they too will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. They will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever. There will be no rest day or night for those who worship the beast and its image or for anyone who receives the mark of its name. This calls for patient endurance on the part of the people of God who keep His commands and remain faithful to Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven say, Write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, they will rest from their labor, for their deeds will follow them. Here we encounter three angels. Let's walk through and look at each one. First is the angel who comes with the eternal gospel. Gospel, of course, is good news. This angel comes and proclaims Good news. Now, the good news is not explicitly spelled out in our text at this point. What, what is announced by this angel is the appropriate response of humanity, uh, of the appropriate response of those who hear the, the gospel proclaimed. The gospel is that, that God in his love sent his son to die, that those who put their faith in him will not die but receive life. Romans 5.8, Paul says, But God demonstrates His own love for us in this. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. Revelation 1.5 says, To Him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by His blood. The good news is that though we are sinners, though we are guilty before God, God in His love for us sent His Son Jesus, who bore the penalty that we deserve, suffered the wrath that we deserve so that through faith in Him we are washed, we are cleansed, we are made new, we are credited with His perfect obedience that we are redeemed. We are brought from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. We are children of wrath, now we are children of the Father. That's the good news, that through faith in Him, and that's what this angel pronounces. He he announces the, the eternal gospel. And the scope of the proclamation, if you look at the text, is every nation... Tribe language and people. That's significant because just back in chapter 13, the beasts, the scope of their deception, the scope of their forcing people to worship was to this same, uh, spelled out the same way, to, to all nations, tribe, every nation, tribe, language and people. It's the same scope. That is, the beast seeks to deceive and lead all astray, and this angel proclaims to all the good news to all people. What we hear on the lips of this, this angel is the appropriate response to the good news that we are to fear God and give Him glory. Uh, fearing God is living in light of what is true about God and about us. To live in fear of the Lord isn't about uh, being scared of God. It's about recognizing God's holiness, God's otherness, our sinfulness, our great need for His grace, recognizing that in Christ He has provided for us a, a way to be made right with Him, and we live in light of that reality of His greatness, His holiness, His glory, and our need for His grace. That is what it means to live in the fear of the Lord, and we are to give Him glory. We are to worship Him. We have been seeing that in this battle, the, the dragon through these agents, the beast, seeks to lead us into false worship, to worship things other than God, to worship what is not God as God. And here, the angel says that we are to fear God, live in light of what is true about God and us, and that we are to give Him glory. We are to worship God. See, we were created by God for God. And the enemy of God who wants to destroy creation and all that is good is seeking to lead us to false worship. See, the enemy wants to keep us from hearing this. The enemy wants to keep humanity from understanding this, that we were made by God for God, that, that only through faith in Jesus will we experience the joy, the peace, the fullness that we were intended to experience that God has for us. The invitation proclaimed by this angel is to hear the good news. To surrender to the Lamb. To worship God, not the beast. He says, the hour has come. This choice is before you. We meet the second angel. The second angel announces the end of Babylon. Let me read it again. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. Fallen, fallen is Babylon. We need to understand that Babylon here is a symbol. Babylon, the empire that we encounter in the Old Testament, is no more. The, the ancient city of Babylon in the desert, the, the desert of Iraq that doesn't exist when John writes his Babylon, he's not speaking about geography again. This is a symbol, a symbol of humanity and rebellion against God, a symbol of empires that set themselves up against God and without God. Robert Mounce puts it this way, Babylon is the spirit of godlessness that in every age lures people away from the worship of the Creator. This second angel announces that Babylon is fallen. Interesting, that, that when John writes this, he's sending this to churches in the province of Asia. When John writes this, Rome is in fact at the zenith of its glory and its power. And this angel cries out, fallen, fallen is Babylon. How does the angel... Proclaim that past tense. Why? Because any nation that seeks to set itself up against God, any uh, nation that that rebels against God, humanity in rebellion against God is bound to fall. It's not a matter of if, it's simply a matter of when. What we must recognize is that the greatest threat to Babylon, be it Rome in the first century or any other empire, the greatest threat to humanity is not another Babylon. The greatest threat is God himself. Gerard Crodel writes this, the supreme threat, the supreme threat to our own world is not communism, capitalism, socialism, or any other ism or lie, but God coming to judge the world and each of us in his righteousness. Because Rome stands against God, God stands against Rome. And because of that, Rome is finished. So this angel proclaims past tense, fallen, fallen, is Babylon the Great. When we come to the third angel, we come to part of the text that we, quite frankly, don't want to hear. It's hard to hear what we encounter here. Uh, the announcement of this angel, this angel puts before us, is, and all hearers of the text, is a crisis of choice, is how Daryl Johnson puts it. This angel announces the judgment of God that will fall on all those who worship the beast and have the mark of the beast. Let me read it again. Uh, These will be made to drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. They will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever. There will be no rest or day or night for those who worship the beast and its image or for anyone who receives the mark of its name." Talk of judgment. The judgment of God is offensive to us, to our culture. It's disturbing in our world. This is one of the great issues that people have for rejecting Christianity. See, we we want a God of love, but not a God who judges. But the reality is that we, we cannot faithfully proclaim the God of Scripture without proclaiming the word about His judgment. Uh, That said, it's vital that we understand that we think about God's judgment accurately. I want to share with you two quotes from J.I. Packer, an evangelical theologian who passed away recently. He helps us, I think, think well about God's judgment. J.I. Packer writes, God's wrath in the Bible is something which men choose for themselves. Before hell is an experience inflicted by God, it is a state for which man himself opts by retreating from the light which God shines in his heart to lead him to himself. A bit later he writes, he goes on, nobody stands under the wrath of God save those who have chosen to do so. The essence of God's action in wrath is to give men what they choose in all its implications, nothing more and equally nothing less. God's readiness to respect human choice to this extent may appear disconcerting and even terrifying, but it is plain that his attitude here is supremely just. Packer says that we choose. And we see that so clearly in this text, don't we? The gospel, the eternal gospel, is proclaimed to all, every nation, tribe, language, and people. The doom of Babylon is announced. This empire that has set itself up against God is fallen. The choice is clear. Worship God or worship the beast. And the Bible insists that those who choose to worship the beast will experience judgment. Not because God is bad-tempered. Not, not because God loses his temper. Not because wrath is even an intrinsic part of God's character. No, holiness is an intrinsic part of God's character. Love is is an intrinsic part of God's character. And because of God's holiness, because of the fact that He cannot stand sin, He must punish it. And because of His great love, He has sent His Son to bear it in our place that we might receive His grace, that we might be forgiven and washed and adopted. Now, the wrath of God is not God losing his cool. It's not God with a bad temper. It is simply the outworking of his holiness. And what we see here is that there is this choice that stands before all of us to worship the beast or to worship the lamb and the one who sits upon the throne. And those who worship the beast, those who bear the mark of the beast, they will drink the wine of God's fury which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. The imagery here has to do with what was common practice in the ancient world. Wine was the regular drink. And often, generally, it was watered down. It was diluted. It would make it last longer. Well, here, we read that the wine of God's fury will be poured full strength into the cup of His wrath. It is unmixed. It will not be watered down. It will come full strength. In other words if you think you've seen wrath to this point, think again. In the seven trumpets earlier, chapters 8 and 9, when the seven trumpet blasts, blasts of God's judgment. Over and over and over again, we encounter the language one-third, 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 one-third. God's judgments in chapters 8 and 9 were partial judgments. They were sounding an alarm. They were calling humanity to repentance. To recognize that their rebellion against God is not good. It was calling them to their senses. Judgment the trumpets was partial, but the judgment coming will come full strength. It will be unmixed, unwatered down. And note the contrast. In verse 8 we read, Fallen, fall, fallen is Babylon the great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. And now in verse 10 we read, they too will drink the wine of God's fury. Rome, the beast, the dragon, forced people, encouraged people, influenced people to drink the wine of her adulteries. And those who succumb, those who refuse the lamb, those who reject God, will drink a different cup of wine. As we read this alarming description of God's judgment, I do want to remind you that the Revelation is a book of imagery, and symbols. And so I think it is wise and imperative, in fact, that we refrain from suddenly taking this text in a strictly literalistic manner as we read this description of God's judgment. That said, however, what is clear is that God's judgment is a terrifying thing. We read on, this calls for patient endurance on the part of God's people. John writes, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. This is the second beatitude we've encountered in the Revelation. The first one was way back in chapter 1. Blessed is the one who reads these words, and blessed are those who hear it and take it to heart, put it into practice. Here, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. We are reminded with that beatitude that death is not the worst thing that can happen. Turning our backs on God is far worse. Worshiping the beast is far worse. You see, the reality is that every one of us will face somebody's wrath. You will either face the wrath of the beast and of the dragon, or you will face the wrath of God and the Father and the Lamb. You see, throughout these chapters, we encounter antithesis after antithesis after antithesis. Serve God or serve the beast? Worship God or worship the beast? Have the mark of the lamb or the mark of the beast? Or the wrath of God or the wrath of the beast? Belong to God or belong to the beast? Have rest or no rest? We, we see that contrast over and over and over again here. This choice stands before all of humanity, and we're faced with that. Who will you worship? Whose mark will you bear? We come to the last portion of the text. Follow long as I read 14 to the end. I looked and there before me was a white cloud and seated on the cloud was one like a son of man with a crown of gold on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Then another angel came out of the temple and called in a loud voice to him who was sitting on the cloud... Uh, Take your sickle and reap, because the time to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who was seated on the clouds swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was harvested. Another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. Still another angel who had charge of the fire came from the altar and called in a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle. Take your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of grapes from the earth's vine, because its grapes are ripe. The angel swung his sickle on the earth, gathered its grapes, and threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. They were trampled in the winepress outside the city, and the blood flowed out of the press, rising as high as the horse's bridles for a distance of 1,600 stadia. The final portion of our text this morning provides two images. The grain harvest and the harvest of grapes. I'd contend that the first image is clearly positive. Uh, Throughout the New Testament, the talk of the harvest of the grain is almost always used to speak of the gathering of God's people. Sometimes there's this additional bit about the chaff. That's not mentioned here. But the harvest of the grain is almost always positive, representing the gathering of God's people. Gathering of the redeemed. In Matthew 9, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Mark 4, as soon as the grain is ripe, he puts a sickle to it because the harvest has come. John 4, 35, I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields there ripe for harvest. One like the Son of Man sitting on a cloud wearing a crown of gold on his head almost certainly represents Christ. An angel coming from the presence of God announces that the time for harvest has come. Jesus swings his sickle and the earth is harvested. Christ gathers all his followers from the ends of the earth. The second image, I think, is one of the most gruesome pictures that we see in the whole book of Revelation. The imagery itself is fairly simple to understand. In the ancient world, grapes would be harvested, not with a sickle. It's another sign that this is imagery. They would be gathered by hand. They'd be harvested and they'd be taken to a a large vat called a wine press. It had holes around the bottom where they could put jars to collect the grape juice. And once the grapes were in there, people would Get in there and they would tromp around on the grapes, crushing them. And the wine, the juice, the grape juice would run out those holes, the bottom of the wine press. In the imagery of these verses, however, it's not grape juice that flows, it is blood. It is a horrific image. But I want to suggest to you that perhaps there's more going on that we might first recognize. Notice in verse 20 the location of this winepress. It is said to be outside the city. Outside the city. Outside the city is where Jesus died. Outside the city was where Jesus was crushed for us. Outside the city is where Jesus' blood flowed. And I would contend that we are reminded here of that, that the lamb who was slain was crushed, that he bore God's wrath for our sin, that his blood flowed. 1600 stadia, and traditionally that was the length of Palestine from north to south. It is 4 times 4 is 16, the four corners of the earth times 10 to the power of 2. This is a lot of blood, enough blood for all. Jesus was crushed in our place so that we can all be washed with his blood. Jesus absorbed God's wrath so that we don't have to face God's judgment. I think it's tremendously significant that this wine press is outside the city. For those here, for those listening this morning who are not followers of Jesus, this text makes it clear that you face a choice. It's the same choice that every single person faces. the same choice every one of us here who are already believers have faced. Who will you worship? Whose mark will you bear? Whose wrath will you face? Jesus loves you. Jesus laid down His life for you. Outside the city of Jerusalem, Jesus was crushed and His blood flowed for you. Will you trust Him? Will you surrender to Him? Will you receive from Him His offer of life and grace and mercy? For those of us who are believers, this text ought to do at least two things. First, it ought to fill us with a deep sense of gratitude. Christ has redeemed us by His shed blood. It's ought to move us to worship Him. To glorify Him. To live for Him. To strive by His Holy Spirit in us to live faithfully to Him. To resist the, the attempts of the beast to lead us astray. To lead us into compromise, but that we would, with hearts full of gratitude, we would we would live singing the song of the redeemed. That we would live for His glory, with all that we have. And secondly, that that we would be inspired, that we would be challenged to take seriously the call to proclaim the gospel, because all around us. In our homes, in our schools, in our places of work, in our neighborhoods, all around the globe, there are men and women who are lost and without hope. And we have the call, the commission, to proclaim the eternal gospel, to announce the hope that is found in Jesus, that there is enough blood, that his blood flowed so that ours doesn't have to. He has borne the wrath in our place. Brothers and sisters, that's got to motivate us. This isn't about guilt. This isn't about me hitting you with a stick. This is about do our hearts break for the lost? Do we cry out daily for the lost? Do we look for it? Do we ask God, teach me to be bold, open doors, help me learn to move my lips and to love people who are lost with your love. When I love someone, help me to explain that I'm doing it because you've loved me. Give me that courage, Jesus, because there's only hope found in you. Brothers and sisters, the revelation is not a crystal ball giving us all kinds of clues about the future. It is a discipleship manual. It teaches us how to remain faithful to the Lamb and to the One who sits upon the throne when we are in the midst of this war. Raged against us. The dragon's fury and his agents We are called, we are warned that there is an enemy who seeks to deceive us. We are warned that there is an enemy who will pressure us to compromise. And we are called to endure faithfully. Knowing that the victory has been won. Knowing that we are sealed and secure. That the name of the Lamb and of the Father are on our heads. That even if we suffer, even if we suffer death, that we stand on Mount Zion with the Lamb, with the redeemed, singing a new song this book, these visions that God gave John inspire our imaginations to help us see what is really real. To give us an alternative vision of reality so that we can face tomorrow, no matter what we face in the physical realm in which we live, that we can face tomorrow with hope and with courage. Amen. We are going to celebrate... Communion together Uh, this morning. I'm going to invite James and Brad to come forward. They're going to serve. They will